Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're picking up in a series on historic church liturgy called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. So why do churches do certain things like sing worship music, listen to sermons, and observe sacraments such as bread and wine? Well, there's great purpose in each of these elements, and frequency or how often things like communion are observed are important. The Reformers believed that the Lord's Supper should be observed weekly to feed our souls. Let's learn more now. Here's John Fonville with The Gift of Communion, Part 3. If you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 28 just for a second. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking just briefly for a moment at the Great Commission. And so in Matthew chapter 28, this is what Jesus says, beginning at verse 18. He says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, remember, begins at verse 18. It begins with the great announcement. It begins with the indicative. It begins with the gospel, the announcement that all authority of heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And it is in light of that authority that the church is commissioned to go forth. And if you look carefully at the Great Commission, it has a balanced two-part structure for disciple-making. The two-part structure has a teaching component and a sacramental component. Jesus said that the way the church is to go forth to make disciples of all nations is by means of baptizing them. That's sacrament. And then he goes on, he says, and also make disciples by means of teaching them, which would include here the Lord's Supper. So there's an important implication of this two-part structure that when we come to the the issue of worship and liturgy that we've been looking at, the Great Commission has a lot to say about how we structure the worship service because one of the important implications that we have from the Great Commission is that the church is not just a lecture hall. The church is not a place where you come on Sunday to hear a pastor lecture for an extended period of time where the people of God come to get good doctrine, get the pure word of God. It is that, but it's not just that. For some churches, one author says that the worship service is like a hymn sandwich. You sing a few songs, then you have an extended lecture sermon preaching time, And then you have a few more songs, and everybody goes home, and that's been worship. For other churches, worship is all about the sacraments, particularly the Lord's Supper, Holy Eucharist, Holy Communion. But you see, the church, according to the Great Commission, its mission for making disciples, it is not just a dispensary where the people of God come to have the sacraments dispensed, administered to them. But it is that also. 
You see, it's easy for churches to fall into either a purely liturgical sacramental routine that neglects solid Christ-centered exposition from Scripture, that makes the preaching of the worship service the sole focus and high point of the church, and it always helps if the pastor is funny and an excellent communicator and is always right on target with all the events of the day and always has the right things to say and make the right connection points to his entire audience. And so everything rides on the celebrity preacher. And so everybody comes to get that preaching event. But if a church, according to Christ's words in the Great Commission, if a church is to be faithful to the Great Commission and to be making disciples and then to be truly missional, that's a popular term that's thrown around today, but to be truly missional is to be faithful to the Great Commission. So if a church is to be faithful to the Great Commission, faithful to making disciples, go make disciples, how, Jesus, and he tells us, then that church will honor both the pure preaching of God's word and the proper administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. The twofold structure of the worship service is simply the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. Go make disciples by means of word and sacrament, okay? That's how this worship service is structured so that it is forming and shaping and making disciples each week in worship. Why is this? Because Jesus teaches us in the Great Commission that both word and sacrament are the two primary ways disciples are made over a lifetime. It is the primary ways that the Holy Spirit forms and shapes believers into the maturity likeness image of Christ. And so both parts of the service, the service of the word, the service of the sacrament, these are gifts of God who is the gift giver, giving his gifts to his gathered guests who have gathered together in worship. And so because the service of the word and the service of the sacrament rest at the heart of the church's mission, because they rest at the heart of disciple-making, Because word and sacrament are the primary means by which you are made in your discipleship over a lifetime as a Christian. This fact raises a very important issue concerning the Lord's Supper that we we want to look at this morning. And that issue is this, the issue of frequency. If the sacraments, along with God's word, are the primary method, the primary means that Jesus himself has instituted, given to the church to make disciples, the issue of frequency concerning the Lord's Supper, which is a covenant renewal, God renewing his pledge and promise of faithfulness to us, which elicits our renewed response of faithfulness back to him. If that is the primary way that Jesus has ordained for you to be made in your discipleship, how frequently should we observe the Lord's Supper? Now, there's no real consensus on this matter of frequency in the church. Um, Many independent Bible churches along with um, Presbyterian, most Presbyterian churches and Reformed churches, 
They typically observe the Lord's Supper monthly or quarterly basis. Many Baptist churches, like the one that I grew up in, observe the Lord's Supper quarterly, four times a year. Some churches only observe the Lord's Supper once a year, while other churches observe the sacrament weekly. And so as we look at this question of frequency, it can't really be settled on the grounds of the diverse practices of the churches. Obviously, the, any, any issue in the church that you're dealing with in terms of like the issue of frequency here, it has to be settled on the basis of the authority of Scripture. And then it has to be assisted with tradition and reason, reason just being common sense, right, to support the authority of Scripture. And so what I want to do with you this morning is to offer you two arguments for observing weekly communion, which obviously, from this point forward, has tremendous implications for what we do in worship, right? Here's the first argument. The scriptures and writings of the early church fathers, which is the tradition part, point to the practice of weekly communion in the early church. The book of Acts, if you look at it, reveals that communion was a regular part of the early church's weekly liturgy, their worship service. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And this is what Luke says that the early apostolic church was devoted to. When they came together, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's scripture, the gospel. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And they devoted themselves, look at this, to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. So there was a set liturgy that they followed. And to the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper. That is Holy Communion right there. They devoted themselves to this every time they gathered to worship. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Luke writes this. He says, on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread... He says, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, if you keep reading, that's the kind of um, semi-hilarious story of Eutychus, this young man who was in the upper room with Paul, who was preaching until midnight. I don't intend to preach that long today. (laughs) Um, And as Paul continued to preach and to preach and to preach, Eutychus fell asleep and he fell out of the window to his death. Perhaps sometimes people in the church have felt like that. If the preacher was preaching, I'm going to fall to my death out of my chair if you don't land this plane, right? (laughs) Um, Poor Eutychus. We, We can sympathize with Eutychus. Paul, I'm not ever going to preach till midnight, I promise. But the point is, as Luke says, that on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together, they gathered together for the purpose of breaking bread, of observing the Lord's Supper, having Holy Communion together. Now, when we look at the post-apostolic church and the traditions of their early church fathers, we also see pointing to the practice of weekly communion. Let me just give you a couple of examples. 
Um, the earliest testimony that we have of worship or liturgy of the church comes from what's called the Didache. Probably 50 to 150 AD, something like that, very, very early on. But the Didache points to weekly observance when it exhorts believers on their worship. It says, quote, on the Lord's day, gather together and break bread and give thanks. When you gather together, you are to break bread and give thanks. That's Holy Eucharist, give thanks. Having first, listen, having first, before you do that, having first confessed your sins, having public confession of sin. Does that sound familiar? Did we do that today? So that your sacrifice, your giving of thanks at Holy Eucharist may be pure. Partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Another witness is Justin Martyr. He got his last name because he was martyred. We don't know what his last name was, but it's Justin who was martyred. Justin Martyr. Probably 100 to 165 A.D., a long time ago. But in his first apology, Justin Martyr at Rome in the middle of the second century gives one of the earliest descriptions of a Christian Sunday worship service that we have in church history. And among all the practices that Justin describes, he describes weekly communion at the Sunday worship service. And I want you to listen to how he describes these early uh, second century believers, what they did on, on Sunday. He says, quote, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Public reading of Scripture. It sounds familiar, right? We did that today. He says, and they read them as long as time permits. I like that. So they, they read a lot of Scripture in their worship service, far more than we do. He says, then when the reader has ceased, the president, the president was just simply the person who presided over the service, verbally instructs and exhorts the imitation of these good things. He preaches a sermon. Then after the sermon, we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought and the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Now, interestingly, in church history, when we come to the Middle Ages, it was the medieval church, the Roman Catholic church, that abolished weekly communion and required yearly observance of communion at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And so whereas weekly frequent communion was the practice of the early church, Yearly infrequent communion was the innovative practice of the medieval Roman church. It's an interesting phenomenon in church history. And so then we come to the 16th century into the Reformation. 
And the Protestant reformers sought to restore the practice of weekly communion to the churches. John Calvin is a great example of this because his desire, though he was not allowed by the Genevan City Council, because there was no separation of church and state, so the state would not allow him to do this, but he tried his whole life to implement it. His desire was to return to the practice of the early church and observe holy communion at least once per week when God's people gathered together for worship. So when you read his institutes, he, he devotes three sections in his institutes arguing for weekly communion. And I want you to listen to a portion of what he says about that. He says, quote, The Lord's table should have been spread at least once a week for the assembly of Christians, and the promises declared in it should feed us spiritually. You see, for Calvin, he believed that Holy Communion was a gift of God who is the gift giver, giving his gifts to his gathered guests in worship. And so because he believed that, he believed and taught that Holy Communion should be observed whenever the word is preached and prayer is offered in the gathering of God's people. And so what we see from the evidence from Scripture and the writings of the early church fathers, they all point to the practice of weekly communion in the early church. And so this leads us to a second argument this morning for weekly communion. Weekly communion is a natural consequence of the nature and purpose of the sacrament. I'm going to explain that. The nature and purpose of the Lord's Supper determines its frequency. When you begin to understand the nature and purpose of the Lord's Supper as well as its missional importance to the mission of the Great Commission in the church, you will not view partaking communion as a hurried add-on to the end of the service, as some tedious event that you've got to tack on at least quarterly or at least once a year because we've got to do it. You'll begin to understand that the Lord's Supper is vital and a necessary part of the weekly worship of God's people. And so what I'm going to do is that I have four points that I'm going to emphasize regarding the nature and purpose of Holy Communion so that you begin to understand why it's so important and critical, not only to being faithful to the Great Commission, but being faithful to helping shape and form you to make disciples in the church. Here's the first. Holy Communion, the nature of it, Holy Communion is communion with Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul says that we truly commune with Christ in this sacrament. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is koinonia. It means fellowship. It means communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? By eating and drinking the bread and wine, when we do it by faith, 
we are participating in, we are communicating, communing with Christ. We are feeding on Christ in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. How can this be? Because remember this, 40 days after his bodily resurrection from the dead, what did Jesus do? He ascended bodily to heaven. Luke chapter 24, verse 51, it says they were standing there and he ascended out of their sight right there in front of them bodily to heaven. So how can we overcome the absence of Christ from our present and actually commune with the risen, ascended, living Christ who is in heaven? How does that happen? It's not magic, and it's not superstition. The answer is the Holy Spirit. We commune with the actual risen, living Christ who has ascended by the mysterious, powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit plays an essential role in the ministry of the sacraments in the church. Apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, the sacraments profit nothing. The Holy Spirit working through the signs and seals of bread and wine, which are the means of grace Jesus has instituted in this sacrament, the Holy Spirit working through those signs and seals, he overcomes the absence of the bodily ascended Christ from our present life. The Holy Spirit, by his mysterious power, is able to bring together things which are separated by a great distance. What do we confess in the Nicene Creed? The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. Who is life? It is Jesus. Who does he give us? He gives us Jesus, right? Both in the preaching of the gospel and in the administration of the sacraments. They are both visible proclamations of Jesus. They are the means by which the Holy Spirit gives to us life. And so the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, takes the past events of 2,000 years ago. He takes Christ. He takes his perfect life of obedience. He takes his death, burial, and resurrection, and he makes Christ and all of his saving benefits present realities to us by means of the bread and wine. We believe that Christ is made present to us through the preaching of the gospel. So if we can hear and Christ is present through that, why can't he be present through what we see by faith in the sacraments? He is. You see, the Holy Spirit is the gift of God for the time of Christ's absence. That's what Jesus taught us in the gospel of John. He says, I'm going to leave you, but don't be dismayed. I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you and will teach you and lead you into all truth. And he will testify, what? Of me. The Holy Spirit makes the reality of Christ's triumphant work in the gospel present to us. He connects the there and then with the here and now. Article 35 in the Belgic Confession really gets it when it says this. 
It says, we do not go wrong when we say that we, what we eat and drink is the true, natural, actual body and the true blood of Christ. However, the manner in which we eat is not by mouth, but in the spirit by faith. It's not the physical eating that, as Lutherans teach, they, you actually have the body and blood in your mouth when, with the bread and wine. That's not what happens. The sacrament doesn't become the thing signified. Then you don't have a sacrament. You have the reality, and that's not Jesus. That's a sacrament. So the eating is not by mouth, but it is by the Spirit, by faith. It is in that way Jesus Christ always remains seated at the right hand of God, his Father in heaven. Yet he does not cease to communicate himself to us by faith. And so this banquet is a spiritual table at which Christ makes us partakers of himself with all his benefits... And he gives us the grace to enjoy both himself and the merit of his suffering and death. It's a wonderful statement. Thanks, John. That's a message called The Gift of Communion, Part 3. More from the series, The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests, coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is the broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.